внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоном вас. С новым веком. It's been described as a gas station masquerading as a country and as a nation that has nuclear weapons, oil wells, and nothing else, and as a mere regional power. Despite the fact that Vladimir Putin's regime has pulled off the first territorial annexation in Europe since World War II, successfully intervened in Syria to save the regime of Bashar al-Assad, and is rapidly militarizing Belarus on NATO's eastern flank, the stubborn perception of Russia as a paper tiger persists. And with the administration of U.S. President Joe Biden focused on China and hoping to park the Russia problem, it's a perception that has serious policy implications. The thing about Russia is that it's never as strong as it appears, and it is never as weak as it appears. So how strong is Russia really, and how much policy attention should it be receiving? Today we'll talk to the two authors of an important article in Foreign Affairs titled The Myth of Russia, Russian Decline to get some answers. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Berninger, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, where he is hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan and Finn, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Michael also served for the U.S. Department of Defense as a research fellow at the National Defense University. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again. And a big hello to Ivan and Finn. I've been following their exploits closely on social media. Hi, Brian. It's great to be here with you today. Great, great, great to have you all. Also joining us from our nation's capital is somebody I've been trying to get on my podcast forever. Andrea Kendall Taylor is a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Before joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer, and from 2015 to 2018, she was deputy national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council in the office of the director for national intelligence. Welcome to the vertical, and Andrea. It's great to finally have you on the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, so as I noted in the intro, Michael and Andrea are the co-authors of what I consider a really important article, The Myth of Russian Decline, Why Moscow Will Be a Persistent Power, which was published in the most recent issue of Foreign Affairs. Now, I know why the two of you wrote this article, because we've, uh, we've been talking about this subject offline for months. But to get the ball rolling for our listeners, I just wanted to ask each of you to explain why you felt it is necessary to remind us that Russia will continue to be a security challenge for the United States and its allies, and that the rumors of its decline have been greatly exaggerated. Michael, have at it. Sure. Well, also very briefly, I think the goal was to first take on the notion that you have in some circles, both in Washington, D.C. and across the Atlantic, that uh, Russia is in some sort of precipitous decline, that maybe it's a problem now, but it's not a persistent problem. And there's a very strong urgency or tendency to focus so much on China that, that it de facto uh, relegates Russia 
to a, a such a uh, sort of much uh, lower priority, right? That you're 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 sort of uh, have a policy committee that's fixating China to the extent that they want to really downsize the Russia problem set. And and I think in our view, that's the wrong approach. I think that we want to frame the conversation about uh, Russia being really much more persistent power. China's thought of as a as a pacing threat, but Russia should be thought more as a persistent threat. And the reason for that is that a lot of the things that get passed around that I think get, get mentioned as facts about Russian decline, many of them are either overstated or frankly are not facts. And these have to do with assumptions about demographic problems Russia has, economic problems it has, uh, issues related to Russian military and sort of the future competitive environment. Many of these are just grossly overstated aspects. Um, and. You know, from the way I look at it, uh, the, the case and the narrative that's been spun is just one that needs to check in with reality. You know, as we like to say, theory needs to check in with practice. And the practice shows that Russia has remained a great power and an influential country on the scene for a very long time. People have tried to retire it throughout history. People have tried to write it off as a great power. And it's often been to the detriment of that strategy community, right? It becomes an intellectual alibi to some extent. Um, that is, when you don't want to deal, you don't want to find a strategy for dealing with Russian power in the world or dealing with the Russian challenge, you sort of find intellectual excuses for why you think the problem is going to go away on its own. And you've sort of written it off. And, and the truth is, when you look at it, there's nothing in the medium or long term that shows that Russia is going to go away as a challenge to U.S. interests, to U.S. allied interests, or, or the yeah, interests or as far as concerns we have related to, to partners around the world. Anyway, this is kind of a brief introduction. I, yeah, I'll no, we're going to we're gonna drill deep without, into without each of these details, things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one thing I wanted to pick up on, and I, I couldn't help but notice the the China testing that hypersonic missile this week that got the attention of of, of, of everybody in our nation's capital, um, most notably General Milley. Um, but the, the thing that bugs me and drives me crazy about this is can't we do both? I mean, this is the United States of America at the end of the day. I mean, we can chew gum and walk at the same time. Can't we focus on both Russia and China? Or is this a bandwidth problem, Michael? Do you see, do you see, is this, do we have limited bandwidth now that we used to not have? <laughs> I mean, I'll just briefly say we we can do both and we should. As Biden administration likes to say, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. That's true. Uh, but most people don't want to. So folks who are focused on China, they feel for whatever reason that any right-sizing or prioritization of the Russia problem set, even if China's clearly first, is going to somehow take away from, mm -hmm. from their focus, their thunder. And uh, to be very frank, the Department of Defense can do both, but doesn't want to. It would like to just focus on one adversary to the extent that it can. You know why? Because it's much more convenient in lots of ways. So, right. so and, and this is just the wrong attitude. We can't have that. We just cannot have that be U.S. strategy or the U.S. outlook in international politics. It cannot be you know, an ostrich strategy where you pretend you only have one problem and the other country is not is, is not a, a significant challenge. But yeah, yeah I think uh, th yeah. there's bureaucratic politics in here for sure. I mean, the Asia hands want their their region to be top dog, um, just like back in the day in the Cold War, the Soviet hands wanted, you know, wanted everything to be viewed through that prism. Andrea, what, what, what are your thoughts? Same, same, same question to you. What are your thoughts? What, why, did, why did you write this piece with Michael? Yeah, so I mean, I clearly agree with everything that Mike just said, but um, you know, I think there's a timing element to that to this article too. And so for me, the piece really grew out of my time working on President Biden's transition, 
And during that time, you know, it was clear that there wasn't going to be any reset with Russia. It wasn't the time. It is not the time for any, you know, real dramatic shifts or new approaches or initiatives on Russia. But I think at that time there was a belief that it required attention. So coming out of the Trump administration and all of the kind of damage that had been done to, to U.S. policy on Russia, uh, there was a lot of energy to do something out of the gates early, right? And so you remember when the Biden administration comes into office, uh, they extend New START. There's the big push to investigate kind of the unfinished business. So looking into Russian election meddling, looking into solar winds, Navalny, the Afghan bounties. There was a lot of energy in the early days on Russia um, right out of the gates. Um, that wasn't really there for China. But I think the issue was as the administration settled in that it just became abundantly clear, as Mike said, that they really truly wanted to focus on China along with climate and COVID. Um, you heard over and over, I hear stories from friends of the administration, how you know there's folks who just you know express the sentiment that they wanna put Russia in a box, they wanna stop the pain, they wanna limit the disruption so that they can focus on this you know, arguably, and in their mind, much more significant long-term challenge that is China. I would say we're also hearing from European allies a real concern that is that the Biden administration is looking past Russia, that it's underestimating the threat. So allies are extremely concerned about the prioritization. And, you know, for that reason, we really thought it was time to write this piece. And then, you know, along the lines of what Mike said, I mean, this is a persistent narrative. This this narrative of Russia in decline is nothing new. It's been around for a really long time. I think one big problem is that somehow belittling Russia has somehow become equated with being tough on Russia. The more you can belittle Moscow and make them seem, you know, you, know, you can't make Russia 10 feet tall, that would be kind of you know, blasphemous in the Russia community. And so people tend to belittle Moscow and the challenge. And our sense is that, of course, there's um, important truth in some parts of the Russia in decline narrative, but we wanted to start to have a more nuanced conversation about what the nature of the future Russia mm -hmm. threat will really be, because we want to right size the challenge. We don't want to say that all the emphasis should be on Russia. That's definitely not what we're saying. It's not the point of the piece. Um, but it needs to be more nuanced. And we, that's that's the conversation we wanted to start to have. Yeah, no, and that came across loud and clear. Sticking, sticking with you, Andrea, I mean, April is the month that we all kind of point to when they're seen from, from looking from the outside, there seemed to be a shift in the administration. Because you're right, I when this administration was coming in, um, I, you know, I volunteered in the campaign as you did. I was not involved in the transition as you were. But I mean, it was clear to me that this 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 administration, I thought, was not going to be soft in Russia. Was not going to downplay Russia. Um, Joe Biden has no illusions about Russia. We, the guy, you know, it's not like the guy just jumped into public life yesterday. You know, been watching his career for decades. Um, and and I noted at the time, and I had Michael Carpenter on this podcast right after right after right before the Biden inauguration, where I made the point of this is the first president since Ronald Reagan that is not going to be coming into office with a stated desire to improve relations with Russia. So I expected something different. Something shifted in April. What was it? You know, I think it's just as personnel took their seats. I mean, Mike made the point about, you know, look, I mean, look in the NSC, you know, with Kurt Campbell and kind of some of the heavies in the NSC really pushing the China agenda, mm -hmm. thinking about Jake Sullivan. And I think where his natural inclination is, is also to focus on the Indo-Pacific 
Um, on the Russia side, the Europe side, a lot of key players weren't in place. You didn't have an assistant secretary. Right. We, I mean, I, so I think, I, that, I mean, that's a more bureaucratic answer, a personality mm -hmm. answer, but I, ha I think that had part to do with it and people really wanting to focus. I will say, so you started to see the China climate and COVID really climb to the top of the agenda. I think another um, important point, though, was the amassing of Russian troops on the Russian border. And I would argue that helped put Russia back in focus. I think that was an incredibly helpful reminder that we can't look past Russia. And I think that's where you saw at least, I mean, it was maybe a little bit of a roller coaster where they came out strong, people take their seats, and then China really becomes the focus. Mm -hmm. And then Putin does the military buildup in Ukraine, and it's like, ah, yeah, yeah, we can't do this, and and we, you know, and this re realization that if you don't tend to the problem, you actually could have a confrontation or a major crisis with Russia, which then would really totally obliterate yeah. the rest of your agenda. So I think there was a little bit of um, a course correction at that time in a helpful mm. way. I mean, it's interesting. You you mentioned the troop buildup on the Ukrainian border, and and, and I was. I mean, I was kind of puzzled by this because the reaction to the troop buildup on the Ukrainian border was to reward Russia with a meeting, which reward Putin with a, a meeting with the U.S. president, which is a damn valuable commodity. Um, and I, I was worried and surprised, frankly, knowing President Biden's uh, views on this and knowing his his history on this. I was I was worried that that was sending the, the exact wrong message to Moscow. My, Michael, what do, you, what, what do you think? I, okay, Brian, I probably have slightly different view. I don't think meetings are a reward, especially when you're meeting to discuss a strategic stability agenda or future of arms control and you're trying to set these arrangements. You need to have presidential meetings in order to then have follow-on technical meetings amongst your staff. And that was part of the administration's agenda going in, that they would begin a strategic stability dialogue with Russia and then discussions on the future of arms control, which is important and you have to meet to do it, right, would be a part of that agenda. You know, but the, the early on, the problem was, uh, picking up what Andrew was saying, at least from my point of view, is a lot of folks want to do strategic stability in order to make, you know, Russia less of a nuisance so they can focus on China. That's the wrong motivation. That's never going to work. It, that, would, mm -hmm. that wouldn't happen, okay? The second one is that we need to be very realistic about what strategic stability will will not entail, why we're pursuing it, and how seriously we actually take Russia. I will say that um, if there's one quibble, a minor one, that I would take with with uh, your comment that Joe Biden came, came in with no illusions, and I think that's very true. Nobody came in wanting to do a on Russia. But in a lot of statements, he shows clearly that he does think that Russia has tremendously severe problems that it's cornered. And Obama thought this as well. There is yeah. a perception of Russia that is decidedly a cornered country that is in decline, that has severe problems. And Biden spoke about this, frankly, several times, all right? And this mentality did not serve the Obama administration well, and it will not serve the Biden administration well either. They have to take Russia more seriously. They have to take it more seriously as an enduring threat. And hopefully after April, because remember before, before then, one of the challenges he also had, at least from my point of view, was you know the administration's interim guidance came out. And that guidance had barely two, three sentences on Russia and the whole section dedicated to China. And, and right. that was not... That was not a good foreshadowing of how, how much focus there would be, what, what the right size prioritization would be between China and Russia, right? It did not tell a great story. That was also part of the reason for me to write this article, right? Because I was concerned. I was concerned about what the NSS, the national security strategy, and the national defense strategy might look like, too. That might basically say, yes. you know, China is uh, the, the central underpinning um, focus of U.S. strategy, 
And Russia has some uh, problematic spoiler that probably will go away and it's not really nearly as yeah. big a deal or something along those lines. I'm not saying yeah. that. Yeah, 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 I'm just being very frank. It, it was a genuine concern. You could see the way the conversation on Russia was shaping up in the spring and summer, early mm-hmm. summer of this year. You could really walk away from that as, with an objective concern. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought up the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, which, of course, are being drafted at this moment. And, Mike, I'm recalling several conversations you and I had offline um, about this, uh, about the fact of that, that this debate needs to be had before these two strategies are drafted, because after that, every argument is about details and tactics and not about strategy. Um, so it's the the time is now to have this discussion. And I mean, I'm recalling a, a conversation you and I had in the summer with our mutual friend and frequent guest on this podcast, Maria Snegovaya, where 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 we discussed that. Let's talk about this. I mean, how important is it to get this impression out there into the bloodstream here in D.C. before the national defense and national security strategies are drafted? And how much time do we have? I mean, I'll just briefly comment. It's end of October at this point. Right. I don't. I don't think if you're gonna uh, if you're gonna get into it, you you have uh, any time or much time left. But the point of the conversation, from my point of view, given Good the damn thing, the, this podcast is coming out this this week. Then. Given, <laughs> given the timetable for when these things get get drafted and and revised and 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 sort of then put out. But but the point of my comment was, look, in the first sort of eight months of an administration. That is a time to have the conversation on strategy and big picture policy questions. After that, these things do get settled. Then you're talking much more operational and tactical things. Then you're having more nuts and bolts debates, right? The question of how the administration comes to view China or Russia, where their prioritization focuses is going to be, and what their potential strategy going to be towards those two states. That's a debate to have in the first year. It really is. It's less than the first year. That's a debate to have probably in the first six to eight months. Right. You know, and and if you want to contribute to that debate, that's the time to have it. Um, and after that, yeah, the NSS will come out, then DS will come out, then DS will be a basis for the Department of Defense's sort of next budget request and so on and so forth. So the bureaucratic machinery, uh, the clockwork move, right? orange will be turning, you know, it, it will begin moving. And then it's going to be late. It's going to be late to have some of these big picture debates, if that makes sense. You know, you. you, you yeah. And, and, and it's important because the question we're trying to address, I think, is a profound question. Yeah. You know, how do you view Russia? How do you prioritize Russia within U.S. strategy? Why? You know, and when you make your outlook near term, medium term, long term, what are the core assumptions that you're operating under when you when you uh, that, that sort of underpin uh, your outlook? on the Russia problem set. Andrew, your thoughts on this? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to add to, I mean, obviously the strategy is really, is important. And all the things that Mike said, I agree with too. But, um, and it is one of the reasons that we wrote the piece. But there's also, there's strategy and then there's the reality on the ground. And sometimes I think, you know, I know that we are all very concerned that the administration is looking past Russia to focus on China, but it's not the way in my conversations with folks in the White House and in the administration that they necessarily see it. There's actually been a lot of very high level attention on Russia, and I would say arguably even more so than on China. So we already said they extended New START. They issued a new executive order significantly expanding the legal framework for sanctions. They initiated the cyber 
they have the cybersecurity ongoing dialogue. They have the strategic stability dialogue. They had the leaders meeting. We've had Toria Newland out in Russia, uh, Jake Sullivan. I mean, I, they've they've opened their lines of communication. You, you know, they had um, President Blinken went to the Arctic Council meeting. Uh, Gerasimov and Milley met, met. So there has been, I think we shouldn't underplay. Mm. Strategy is certainly one thing, but on the ground reality has also revealed that there has been very significant high level attention on the Russia challenge. No, that's that's a, that's a fair point, Andrea. And I think we, I mean, I, I think we we shouldn't overstate Russia's not t- entirely being ignored. But I'm seeing some trends that worry me. Michael and I have been following very closely what's going on in Belarus. I came on your podcast with David Kramer to talk about that. This is something that's really worrying me. Belarus is being militarized very, very quickly, um, and co- the militarization of Kaliningrad continues. This is on NATO's eastern flank. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried that there's a serious security dilemma, you know, threat emerging there. It's more than a dilemma. It's a threat emerging there. And I don't see much reaction. Michael, you wanted to say something about the defense budget. So go, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, I completely agree with Andrea and, you know, we, we don't want to, um, be unfair to the administration. Actually, the, I think after the events of March and April, the administration began to, you know, well, began to do what most administrations begin to do, which come in and first downplay the role of Russia, and then they realize that Russia also gets a vote as to where it's going to be on the policy agenda, and suddenly you find it in a different place. That's usually that that that's happened uh, uh, to many administration. But um, but the only comment I would make here is, look, ah, uh, yeah, sure, but show me the money because spending on deterrence and defense in Europe, uh, the. Uh, request for that is declining year on year, and I think it's saying another 19% decline this coming year, and funds are being transferred from uh, EDI in Europe to the Pacific, to PACOM, to terms of China. And I gotta be honest, um, when you look at that funding, it's like it's 800 million or things of that uh, of that nature. That's not gonna make a difference in the in right. terms of China, I should be very frank. In, in the great war over Taiwan with China, that's gonna make 0.0 difference, I'll be very right. frank. If your entire budget for deterrence and defense uh, in Europe, let's say something five to six billion, then taking 20% out of that is significant. It's not going to make much right. of a difference in PACOM's AOR. It will make a difference in UCOM's AOR, right? That's just a bureaucratic argument. I think it's a very fair one. So they may be taking Russia a lot more seriously, but then you're saying, okay, but are they even holding steady on funding for deterrence and defense in Europe? Just can they even hold it flat? And the answer looks like no. It yep. doesn't look like they're doing that. So well, it's, a, it's a fair question to ask. And this is something our allies in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and all the other frontline states are, are, are watching very, very closely. I'll be going to, to Vilnius next month uh, to speak at a conference with the, the foreign ministry, um, where I'm hoping to do an episode of this podcast to see what this looks like from the front lines. What I want to do now, because you guys laid out, where, uh, and I want to do this article justice because I think it deserves it, you really laid out a series of points of why the economy is not as weak as we think it is. The military stronger than we think it is. And this is not just a Putin problem, and some which something which is something I wholeheartedly agree with. I think this is a systemic problem. So I, I'd like—I uh, mean, I guess, uh, Andrea, you want to go first? Because dive in, like, what, pick out the the main points you wanted to to highlight there about 
why the economy isn't as weak as, as it is. I, I, I am known for saying over and over on this podcast that the, the GDP of Russia is smaller than the, the, the state of Texas, um, where this podcast is being produced. <laughs> and Michael's shaking his head, as I knew he would. And, and again, Michael, you, I mean, uh, uh, the, 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 the military piece of this, you, you did make a case that the, um, that the, that the military is much stronger than we think. So let, let's, let's dive into these, these points before we go into the second part and talk about right-sizing Russia. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, from my perspective, the the Putin piece is the part that I think often um, we put too much emphasis on, right? You know, and obviously Putin has done a very good job at trying to create the perception that Putin is Russia. Um, Putin is not Russia. And a lot of the problems that are present in U.S.-Russia relations today will live beyond Putin. And I think, you know, there is sometimes some hopeful thinking that once um, Putin leaves power, and he will eventually, yep. um, that this will be resolved and things can stabilize or normalize in a different way. And uh, I think, you know, based on a lot of the work I've done on authoritarian regimes, when you look at the way that these transitions tend to occur, you know, when you have these longstanding leaders in power to over 20 years, um, oftentimes um, the regime remains intact after the leader leaves. And um, I think that's what we have to expect, and we can't just wish the problem away. So I think it was to say that, you know, even after Putin, a lot of the primary contours of Russian foreign policy will remain. Those contours have support along, among many people within the political elite, within the public. And we shouldn't expect all of a sudden that once Putin departs that somehow, you know, that we won't have such um, massive difference, differences and in interests between our two countries. So I think that's one really important point that often um, policymakers cling to is that wishful thinking that we have a Putin problem, but really the realities persist. One of the key things that I think I wish that we, the international community, would start discussing a little bit more openly is what to do with Crimea, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, after Putin leaves, I, a future Russian leader is just not going to hand Crimea back. And that has been one of the kind of key sticking points in the relationship. And, you know, so, so what are we going to do? You know, when Putin departs, what are we going to do about this Crimea question? Is that going to continue to plague relations for here and to infinity? Uh, I think we need to start having, you know, a much more open conversation about once there is some sort of transition in Russia. Obviously, the future of Russia is for Russians to decide. But what will be the role of the international community in the U.S. and Europe in particular? Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a great point. I mean, I'm reminded by the, a quote from Gleb Pavlovsky, one of Putin's original strategists, who's since left him, of course. He said, when Putin falls, he'll fall in a day and he'll be replaced by something just like him. Um, this is a systemic problem. This is Putin. Putin is a manifestation of an, of an oligarchic, autocratic, kleptocratic system. And that yeah, system and was there before Putin. It'll be there after. Go yeah, I think when we looked at all the leaders like Putin, when they when, you know, the most common form of exit was, de was death in office, that these leaders tend to stay in office till the very end. And when a leader in a regime like this leaves through death, death in office, it tends to be someone from within the elite that replaces him. So right. I Right. That's the most common trajectory. It's not the only trajectory, but these other things are are less likely. Um, and so, it, you know, banking on significant improvement in the relationship at some future date, I think, is is not a winning strategy. Yeah, no, I think it's wishful thinking. Um, it's just worse than not a winning strategy, actually. Michael, I know you wanted to talk about some matrices because, I mean, you did, a, you know, this piece did a, a really admirably exhaustive job 
on making the case that the Russian economy isn't as weak as we think it is. The military is a lot stronger than we think it is. So what, what, how, how, uh, for our listeners, kind of flesh out how you, how you look at these matrices. Yeah, I'll try to hit kind of three big bullets. So first, the economy. So, okay, Russian GDP growth writ large is very anemic. Russia's technically in economic stagnation, that's true. And they wiped out a lot of the progress of the last 10 years in terms of people's wages and earnings. But the real impact has been on people. It's not the macroeconomic picture. The macroeconomic picture of Russia, first of all, is very stable. Second, Russia completely rebuilt the reserves and then some since the confrontation began in 2014. All the people that were saying Russia's going to run out of foreign exchange reserves and all this stuff proved to be completely wrong. Um, when we look at the size of the Russian economy, yeah, sure, and market exchange rates that basically go off of currency exchange, it looks like it's the size of Texas. But as you know, and I have to wrap you on the knuckles, I, I, I hate this. It's completely wrong. Russia's economy and PPP is about $4.1 trillion. This is the second largest economy in Europe. It's the sixth largest in the world. That overstates the size of the Russian economy, but you cannot use currency exchange rates to compare GDPs. Because if you do, then you'll observe something very straightforward. That around 2014, 2015, when the exchange rate ruble to dollar changed dramatically by, by – uh, more than double, you'll see Russia's GDP basically decline, right, mm -hmm. by over 50 percent. And that's not true. That's not what actually happened. Um, so the economy is bigger than we think it is, and it's bigger, bigger than it appears to us. If you, okay. if, if you think it's not, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that you've heard from me before um, that's a bit annoying uh, and academic <laughs> sounding. It's uh, you will suddenly have a very large input-output problem. And it's the same thing with Russian defense spending. It's when you tell me that this thing is the input, but then in practice, when you see the output, it completely doesn't match what you claim to be the input. Well, because right? they're buying they're so, buying kit and weapons with rubles, not with dollars. That's that that's well, basically the crux of it, right? Yeah, and 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 because people in the economy spend money in rubles and not in dollars, the economy is infinitely larger, right, than it appears, because the two largest sectors in the Russian economy are the service sector and then the manufacturing sector, not the energy sector. The government in Russia depends on export of energy, particularly oil, for the revenue, for the budget. That's true. The Russian government is very dependent on energy export and extraction. But the large sector in Russia is the service sector. Look, it's 145 million people. It's a high middle-income economy with a higher per capita income than China. I mean, why do you expect it to be that small? If you do, just the math doesn't add up. That's what I mean by input-output problem. You very quickly realize it's not possible for that to be uh, – uh, the, the actual figure for Russia's GDP. The real problem for Russia's economically, from, from the current standpoint, is that its resources are not finite. Now, this is not a five to 10 year problem, but Russia's oil production will either peak in the coming decades, some may think it's already peaked, and that means that the country's capacity to export easily extractable, meaning cheap oil, will have hit a ceiling, right? That all these sort of, that there's no, no more cheap uh, sort of green fields to be found. But look, well, you know, Russia still ranks amongst the top 10 in the world in terms of R&D spending. And in a lot of technology areas, it doesn't matter if you're a leader, you're pretty well positioned a second mover in them. So the country's ability to muddle through and sustain this, like Russian economic stagnation is very, very mild. This is one bullet. Second bullet, let's do military defense, very straightforward. But before you go to that, Mike, sure. too, the other really important point, too, is that we raise in the piece is also a lot of what Russia does, it does on the cheap. And so when you think about its military interventions in Syria, Ukraine, you think about cyber operations, disinformation, doesn't cost a whole lot of money. And I know, I mean, there's we're going to get to the military component of it, but in terms of the more kind of asymmetric disruption yeah. piece that people like to focus on, doesn't cost a lot of money, and the economy is not going to meaningfully constrain the, abil the ability of the Kremlin to do that, you know, for the foreseeable future. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good point, Andrea. And also I would add, and even if we want to accept, and we are not accepting, but if we want to accept for the sake of argument that Russia is in decline, declining powers can still be very dangerous. You know, this is something that seems to be lost in this thing. We don't want to accept that. because We, we don't would... want to accept that. Yeah, <laughs> Michael, we... make the military case. Yeah, we, okay, I, I think we want to treat that conversation very conditionally. At no point does the article say Russia's doing really well and the regime doesn't have significant problems across these areas. And, and uh, you know, but, you know, you know, my joke is that uh, Russia's the next declining power, and it always will be. That's my paraphrase of <laughs> a joke about Brazil. You know, when you tell me about these problems, I'll immediately say that Russia's had these problems only for the last 500 years. But uh, <laughs> this sort of, no, but like this, this conversation, the, the, the sort of, the, you know, the, uh, the parochial uh, nature of the economy, the patronage system that runs the state. The and and uh, and all these other aspects of it. Right. You, you can oh, have, just go back to the grand. Have they go back to the grand duchy of Muscovy, man. <laughs> you like we could all have this podcast in several other time periods, right? And and we will f and and fairly address these questions. But let me turn to the military side. Very straightforward. So first, Russia spends a ton of defense. Russia spends overall four percent of GDP in military expenditure. Its real effective military expenditure is somewhere between 150 and 180 billion dollars per year, right? Using proper purchasing power parity when you adjust it. Um, what you get out of that is it's able to buy tremendous amounts of conventional military power and nuclear force modernization as well, right? Uh, and that's what we basically see is Russia remains the United States primary peer in nuclear weapons technology, even though lots of folks are now fixated on these tremendous achievements of China has. Uh, deploying really fascinating things that, you know, Soviet Union deployed in the 1960s. Wow. Fragile <laughs> orbital bombardment system. What an amazing innovation. We should all congratulate China for arriving to the Cold War arms race of the 60s and 70s. There's a lot of the tech being demonstrated. But, um, sorry, I'm being, I'm being a bit facetious. <laughs> You're being but, uh, funny. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, being facetious, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of near a Sputnik moment. I'm saying, you know, he's not wrong because some of the technology that, that China's demonstrating is really towards that time period. But uh, if you will say, well, it's got a hypersonic boost glide uh, thing attached to it, and my answer and my comment on that is, who cares? It's completely irrelevant for, for most things. Um, but look, aside from NATO, Russia feels the strongest conventional military in Europe. It's been reforged in a period of reforms and investments since 08. That transformation got largely overlooked until 2014. If you look at Russian military actions in Ukraine, later successful expeditionary operations in Syria took a lot of people by surprise. Then a much cheaper deployment to Libya with mercenary forces, right? Today, Russia's military is at the highest level of readiness, highest level of mobility, technical capability in decade. You saw the deployment around Ukraine in March, April. People say, well, Russia, it's a real strain on Russia to make these deployments. Not at all. You saw how large the Zapad exercise series was then following on to July, August, and the main event in September. Russia's still maintaining some of these deployments around Ukraine. By the way, good topic potentially for a podcast yep. down the line. That's a... Yes. Uh, that's a thing people should be watching um, in in terms of the sustained military activity around Ukraine. You know, uh, and okay, NATO conventionally remains superior on paper, and you hear this often from Europeans, that NATO is somehow stronger. And I'll say that if your understanding of war is kind of like fancy football, that is on Excel spreadsheets, NATO looks a lot better, the answer is, Sure, that should give you cold comfort because the last contingent in war and NATO's apparent superiority doesn't at all guarantee either victory or the ability to deter Russia across range of possible conflict. That's just not how military power is measured, how it works, or how deterrence works. So just that's that's you need to treat Russia as what it is, and it is the most powerful individual 
military in Europe, right? That's the reality. Whereas NATO is an alliance that has to come together to and forge, forge consensus. That power, yes. And a lot depends. There's a lot of ifs in that equation, right? Um, and the last one I can be very big, which is demographics. Um, this is the strangest conversation on Russia, and you'll encounter it across the Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't avoid it. <laughs> the deterministic decline, quantitative decline of Russian population is the strangest uh, conversation you typically get. Um, so Russia's facing a population decline of maybe somewhere between 7 and 10 percent by 2050. It's very likely going to go from 145 million people to maybe 133 million people or thereabouts. Uh, so it's going to go from being by far the largest uh, country in Europe to being by far the largest country in Europe, population-wise. Uh, this population decline doesn't really mean anything. So first, the most populous countries in the world are not the world's leading powers, right? If they were, then Bangladesh and Nigeria and Indonesia would be the top powers in the world, okay? So population size and what its relationship to your actual power is not, it, it's not direct at all. But more importantly, what matters is not quantity. What matters much more is quality. And actually, Russia's dramatically improved its demographic profile over the last 20 years. And the quality of Russian demographics had been improving for a long time until recent years. Obviously, it's been COVID-19 and it's been a, a recession post-2015 where, where Russia has seen some setbacks. But the demographic conversation is completely not deterministic of Russian power. In general, the relevance of the size of your population to state power, what we understand power to be, or any of our concerns with Russia, as Andrea mentioned, whether you're focused on conventional military and nuclear capabilities, you're focused on offensive cyber power, you're focused on forms of indirect warfare, political warfare, use of special forces, mercenaries, is completely meaningless. Russian population decline will not affect right. any of these things by 2050. I guarantee you. I guarantee right. you this is true. Right? This is the reality. It's not going to substantially reduce Russia as a threat, and it's not deterministic of outcomes. These can be shaped. The two main factors of Russian population decline are excess mortality and fertility, like birth rates. And the government's been implementing a lot of sort of policies and committing a lot of resources to make that a much smoother decline than it would have otherwise would have been than the picture that looked that looked much more dire in the early and mid 2000s. That's I'll, I'll, I mean I'll summarize on that point, but just to basically say that I think folks have a gross misunderstanding of Russia's democratic demographic challenge and have a deterministic perception of it, they think that it somehow determines a decline of Russian power, and it doesn't, it doesn't presage anything like that. And the last thing I'll say is, if you believe that, I have good and bad news. The good news is, this is not the first time in the first decade people have predicted Russia's demographic doom. The bad news is that this has happened many a time before in our field, and all the people who have predicted this were wrong, historically. So this is just the latest generation of arguments about Russian demographic problems. Yeah, there is a cyclical nature to this. Andrea, do you have anything to add on, on the hearing? Um, yeah, I think the one thing that we haven't talked about and I think that really got a little bit of short shrift in the piece is Russian threat to democracy and so kind of all of the democracy and human rights pieces. I mean, mm -hmm. Brian, you were already talking about Belarus and the way that the Kremlin props up these parasitic repressive regimes, whether it's Belarus or Syria or you know Libya or other places. And so, I mean, I think that's one area. Yes, it, Russia will remain a military threat, but it also is, uh, you know, arguably the or as much of a threat as China is. Oftentimes, you know, China seems to get a little bit more recognition there, but it really is the Kremlin that has gone on the offensive to take the fight to Western liberal democracies, whether it's the tax on our elections, European elections, 
the cyber attacks, the ransomware attacks. And so, uh, you know, I, you, you hear sometimes, or I've heard even recently claims that Russia has relatively limited aims and objectives. But I would say in this in this domain, taking on liberal democracies undermining, look at all the themes that Val died this year for President yeah. Putin talking about conservatism and all yeah. of that. I mean, he is, you know, People will also say, you know, but he doesn't really offer an alternative. He doesn't have an ideology. He doesn't stand for anything. It might be true, but yeah, he is, I would take. I would quibble with that. But yeah. yeah, but but he is at least starting to. I think, you know, with support to leaders of the far right, he I, he is starting to build some momentum around these conservative values. Um, in a way that it is, you know, and obviously the, domestically within Russia, the the political situation, the repression has grown tremendously. Um, and so in, you know, just, I, I just wanted to put that piece out there. It got a little bit of short shrift in the, in the article. And that there's a, the nexus with the technology piece too. I mean, we have a yeah. little bit of mention of the digital authoritarianism. Again, obviously China often gets the big, headlines in terms of its brand of digital authoritarianism. But look what's happening in Russia in the digital space and all of the rollback of freedoms online. That is sometimes a more achievable uh, model for other regimes who are looking to emulate what Putin does. And in that sense, you know, I, I would say another reason why Russia is a persistent power is because it's likely sustained efforts to continue to erode and undermine liberal democracy. No, I'm glad you brought the um, I, I'm glad you brought the normative aspect into this, Andrew, because this is very much a normative and an, an ideological conflict. And Putin is, I would argue, there is an ideology there. I persistently argue that there is an ideology there. And Putin is trying to create an, a, an ideological alternative to, to 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 liberal democracy. I mean, our, our our common friend Peter Pomodantsev has put it that Putin has turned himself into the Che Guevara of the populist right. And I think he's actually done doing that, and it's it's working, and it's a problem. Um, before we move into the second half, I just wanted to go very briefly. You guys defined Russia as a persistent power, which I like that. That's 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 really good. Just very briefly, kind of give us what you, what you mean by persistent power for our listeners. I guess I'll 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 take that on. Um, by persistent power, I think they the purpose of the term is first, of course, differentiated from you know the pacing threat the way China has described, but to make clear that Russia is an enduring power that will be on the scene and that the United States can neither ignore it, nor should we, of course, you know, treat Russia as though it's 12 feet tall. We shouldn't over-aggrandize the threat, but we need to understand that this will be an enduring challenge, right? And the best way to frame that is as a persistent power. We will have to deal with Russia's role in the world in international politics, and so will our allies and partners. That's the idea. And so even though Russia may not be thought of as the pacing conventional threat, right, we may not be able, we, we may not see Russia developing in the kind of military challenge that China is over Taiwan. It's, it's a different kind of threat. It's distinct in its own right. I guess I just would add, I mean, how you think about the challenge, I think, shapes how you approach it. And it gets back to looking and underestimating Russia. The, when you view Russia as a declining power, there's a sense that you can just mitigate the worst of it now and that it's going to be a lesser threat later. Like, we just need to get through this period and later it will be better. And I think that's what we view as wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it is going, this will be something that we have to deal with for a long time. And so, you know, I mean, that frame, I think, matters. And we wanted to replace it. We don't, declining power doesn't work. 
It leads to wrong policy approaches. We wanted to replace it with something that we thought would lead to more productive conversations about how the U.S. should approach Russia. And that's what that persistent power framing should do. And that, my friend, is the perfect segue to move into the second half of our discussion when we're going to talk about right-sizing Russia, which will indeed be the headline of this podcast. Um, I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, on the land once owned by George Washington, where he is hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan and Finn, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Michael also served for the U.S. Department of Defense as a research fellow at the National Defense University. Also joining us from our nation's capital is Andrea Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for for New American Security. Before joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer and from 2015 to 2018, she was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So the United States and its allies have long had a tendency to either overestimate or underestimate Russia's strength, to alternatively see it as a 100-foot-tall giant or a 90-pound weakling. Michael and Andrea, uh, the, the final and I thought most important section of your article is aptly titled Right Sizing Russia. So uh, so where are we at getting it right in right-sizing Russia? Where are we getting it wrong and what do we need to do? What do you think, Andrea? I know what you think because I read the piece, but tell our listeners. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think this administration has done a lot right. Um, I think starting from the very beginning, what we already talked about, they came into office not pursuing a reset with Russia. We talked about how President Biden has a very clear-eyed view of what Russia is, you know, his, he made that comment very early on as Putin is a killer. And we could argue, you know, maybe not the most diplomatic thing to do, but it was a really honest moment that reflected how he sees President Putin. And that is that, you know, he leads a corrupt regime that benefits only a few. He's cracking down on Russians. So I think we, they've, they've started from a, a very um, helpful place relative to a lot of past administrations that have looking to co- look to come in to do a reset. Um, they are doing, um, you know, focusing on democracy and the health of our own regime. We're going to have the democracy summit. A lot of that, the strengthening and getting our own house in order, I see, is a very significant part of waging a, an effective competition against Russia. They've elevated anti-corruption as yes. a national security priority. They issued the directive out to agencies to, to, to take a look at what they're doing on the anti-corruption front. Um, they are, they've opened channels of communication that atrophied under the Trump administration. So lots of early high-level interactions that we've already talked about, that was a priority. 
there was a sense that we were in a very dangerous place with Russia because we lack those channels of communication that might be able to prevent some sort of unintended escalation from spiraling out of control. They've done a good job at that. I think they're doing a good job at rethinking the sanction strategy. The Treasury Department issued their sanctions review mm -hmm probably left, a lot, there was a, a lot wanting probably still there, but I, I, I do think that they are thinking hard about the role of sanctions in our foreign policy. I think this administration is more reticent to just immediately pick up the sanctions tool as the only way to address Russia. They're at least they've begun the thinking. Um, and obviously with the strategic stability talks and the, the cyber talks, not only are those the channels of communication, but this administration has been um, earnest in wanting to put the guardrails in place. They refer to it as, you know, so the channels of communication and putting some guardrails on those relationships. So there is a lot that is positive happening. Brian, I know you've mentioned there's also a lot that's wanting and we can talk about yep. where we need to go from here, but there have been, I think, some very positive steps um, in the first nine to 10 months now. No, again, and that's a that's a good reality check, Andrea, because I, I do not want to make the, the impression that we think the administration is doing everything wrong here because they're doing a lot right. And I'm really glad you mentioned corruption because I, for me, it warmed my heart to see that memorandum come out with President Biden's signature on it really early in the administration. I've been screaming about this since my days at RFERL about the, the importance of corruption as a national security issue. Um, I'm, I'm delighted the administration's elevated it, but not just the administration, the legislative branch as well. The yeah, the, the, the well. caucus is amazing, and there's some really great uh, legislation on that that's been being discussed. It's awesome to see the energy that's coming behind this. Yeah, I know, and I want to tip my hat to the Helsinki Commission, which is producing a lot of bipartisan, and I know that word sounds foreign these days, but some real bipartisan legislation coming out of the Helsinki Commission. We've had Paul Massaro, who's a senior policy advisor over at the Helsinki Commission, on this program several times to talk about a lot of the great work that, that, that is going to advance our national security interests, as well as like cleaning things up here in terms of offshore and beneficial ownership, which are not just issues of good governance and, 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 and you know, good and honesty. They're, they're, they're security issues. Uh, Michael, uh, I guess Andrea gave us what the administration's doing right. I guess it's your, your job to tell us what they're not doing right or where they need to, where, where, where they need to do better. Wait, why do I have to be the bad cop in this? Story? I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're, pretty, like, pretty, you're pretty good at being the bad like, cop. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. So, um, uh, no, all right, first of all, I, I do think they've gotten a lot right. And as I said, I disagree with you almost on, on the mean reaction stability because I thought that that was important. It was important to have those discussions, set the agenda. I The part that I, I was just said, the part that I do really like is that they adjust to the realities as they change. And when they see some faulty assumptions regarding Russia, I see them evolving on that on those issues quickly. And that's what I like to see. Um, no matter what, whether you agree or disagree with policy, they seem to be responsive to the practical realities on the ground. All right. Um, so I'll be back up. What do I like? Uh, first, uh, I'm, I'm not seeing a halt to the cuts on spending for deterrence and defense in Europe. And those things actually yeah. matter. Um, they do. You have to take Russia seriously as a military threat and a challenge. Uh, second, the notion that just because Russian defense spending is flatlined, we've somehow now kept pace and we can focus on China. Uh, that's not true. Uh, Russian defense spending, Russia spends a lot more on procurement and modernization as a share of defense spending. And you see just the growth in Russian force, force posture 
in the Russian instruction capability. So I, I would be very careful in thinking that the military challenge in Europe has been solved. And I'm not just saying that because as a military analyst, I'm a hammer, so I, I like talking about nails. But I'm also saying that because that's a that's a that's a real problem set. You have to you have to keep pace with. It. Although although yes, as a military analyst, I do like talking about these things. Um, I personally really dislike the NATO conversation regarding China. I think NATO's focus should be Russia and yep. the European sphere yes, of operations. I am profoundly disinterested in seeing NATO help us in uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, AOR. I think there is a relevance to the conversation of China as a threat from the standpoint of technologies, from the standpoint of things like 5G, from a conversation about democracy that Andrea was having earlier. I can see NATO having a role in that conversation. But what I really don't want to see is the conversation being, hey, NATO, uh, we should focus you now more on the China challenge. First of all, the Russia challenge is not solved at all in Europe. Don't tell me a story. Right. That's completely untrue. All right. Second. Um, not even close. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not. I mean, let's be serious about this. Uh, and second, the best thing NATO can do for us is to pick up more of the security tab in Europe. Right. And to have a greater focus on Russia and to invest more in their own defense, which would then potentially free us and our resources to deal with China and to shift more of, the, of our military towards the the asia pacific right that's probably the best uh the best uh way in which they could help but i really dislike um distracting nato you know with with china and nato also feeling that because the united states is focused on china right because some countries in, in nato will have a tendency to look at where u.s strategic thinking is going and try to import that and and now thinking that they also have to be talking about china to stay relevant to the united states right i'm, I'm desperately i'm really worried that this is this is going to be the impression that some European countries take. Uh, so those things I those things I don't like. I also um, I think that uh, the general notion that Russia somehow tapped out that I hear occasionally here and there in uh, some circles I think is profoundly wrong. Folks that think Russia can't take more on in terms of military adventurism, that Russia can't deploy more forces elsewhere, that Russia is so um, uh, uh, constrained in terms of its economic resources or current uh, uh, stability, political stability concerns, that uh, that this thing is largely that the problem is about as big as it's going to get. And I'll close the point on this by saying that I think that the administration, I could be completely wrong on this, right? Because I, I could be wrong. I don't think they're taking seriously the real likelihood of a major conflict in the former Soviet space, either over Belarus or a repeat, you could say repeat, but a more honest way would say a dramatic escalation in a qualitatively mm -hmm. different way of the war in Ukraine. Right. That this could very well happen on their watch and it could be a very defining military yes. crisis for them. While they want to focus on China, mm -hmm. they will miss this thing as it develops. And it's going to come back and bite them. Yep. And part of the reason why it would be is if they're not sufficiently forward-leaning on tracking what's happening in Belarus and tracking what's happening in Ukraine. I, I'm serious. You know, I'm a very conservative from an analytical perspective. I'm the last person that says there's going to be a war, there's going to be an escalation or an invasion. All right? I don't cry wolf. I'm just being frank and saying that this is, this is yeah. a very serious possibility. Yeah, just ask President Obama. I mean, you, 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 you may not be interested in Russia, but Russia is interested in you. Um, just a couple of things I would add to this, um, things I would like to see happen. Um, one thing I would really like to see happen is something is the active measures working group to be revived. 
I mean, this is one of the great innovations of the Reagan administration. Um, you know, and I say that as a liberal Democrat. This is one of the great innovations of the Reagan Demo uh, administration. It was a very low budget operation. It was an, it was an interagency group that basically worked on countering Russian active measures, um, and it was very very successful. Um, and I would and it would it'd be a very low cost, very easy thing to do that I think would have a lot of bang for the buck. So that's one thing I would like to see happen. Um, I agree with you, Michael, on the force posture in, 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 on NATO's eastern flank. I'd like to see that more robust, but I'll leave that to military experts like you. Um, something I would like to see, and you you y'all might disagree with me about this, but I would like to see a symbolic gesture like granting Ukraine major non-NATO ally status. It's a very cost free free thing you can do. Um, and it opens, it, it has enormous symbolic value. NATO, let's face it, Ukraine ain't getting into NATO anytime soon, no matter, no matter how much I would like to see it happen. Um, and granting them an MNNA status would be, um, would, would, I think have an enormous, uh, it would mean a lot to the Ukrainians. It wouldn't incur any major obligations on us. You can turn MNNA into anything you want it to to turn it into, right? But I think it would be an important symbolic step. And I would like to see a much more active role for the US in places like Georgia and Moldova. Um, we're absent in Georgia, and guess what? We're losing it. It's it's basically slipping back into the Russian orbit as we speak. I'm having dinner with a Georgian friend who's here in, in, in DC tonight to talk about this. Um, Moldova's a good news story, and let's like, you know, let's like let's talk more about this. Maya Sandu is the president of, of Moldova. Whoever thought that was gonna happen, right? And that and, and that and that's just awesome. And this is one of these frontline countries. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Um Andrea, anything to add to what Michael said? Because you painted the the, the, you know, the optimistic picture, and I, I forced Michael into playing bad cop and doing the pessimistic pictures. Is there anything more you would like to see done? That, I think there's a lot more I would like to see done. <laughs> um, I mean, I thought, you know, what I do, and this is continuing with the theme of what I liked, um, but what we need more of. I mean, I like the fact that this administration came in with the mantra that they will confront where they must and engage where they can. Mm -hmm. Some people found that confusing, maybe that it was at odds with one another, that we couldn't compartmentalize the relationship like that. I don't really see another way to the mm -hmm. relationship. And I think historically, the relationship bilateral has always been some sort of. We did that with the Soviet Union. There's no yeah. reason we can't do it with Russia. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I guess what I would be looking for at this juncture is just a lot more energy on both of those fronts. Um, so you mentioned a couple of things, but, you know, in terms of on the confrontation side, you know, I think there's some interesting ways people are talking about using sanctions on the anti-corruption front. Yes. Starting to think about can we use them akin to the way in the counterterrorism world where you can use exactly. sanctions to bust up corrupt networks. Um, thinking about, you know, we, that we had a success story where we took down the cryptocurrency exchange, you know, with the ransomware to disrupt those operations. I think one useful way to use sanctions in the future is to start trying to use them to disrupt things mm -hmm. that Russia is doing. I think we could be doing a lot more to support Russians outside of Russia. Yes. I think we could be doing a lot more to support the investigative journalists, to make resources available to people who have left, um, making legal assistance more readily available. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a whole basket of things that could be done to support Russians who have had to leave Russia. I agree with you uh, entirely, Brian, that we need to somehow revitalize the Ukraine situation. The Normandy process, I think, for all intensive purposes, is dead. 
Um, I'm hearing more and more that President Putin really has no interest in engaging in Normandy. It seems to me that they're looking for more of a bilateral conversation with the United States. We need to figure out what our role in that process is going to be, and we yeah. need to breathe new life into it. Um, there's obviously a lot more we could be doing on the getting our own house in order, but we can we can set that aside. I think on the confrontation side or more on the guardrail side, there's a lot more we could be doing in the Arctic. Um, I would love to see maybe some sort of military code of conduct that was negotiated bilaterally with the United States and Russia. If we saw progress there, perhaps we could condition a restart of the Arctic Chads with Russia's participation on good on you know, productive engagement on the military code of conduct. I probably would uh, support supporting the Arctic Chads unconditionally, but I get, I understand, I think that's a non-starter for the U.S. government. Yeah. It's a non-starter for most European allies. So let's create, do something that's in our interest, like this military code of conduct. And if Russia demonstrates its engagement in that process, that can conditionally allow them to rejoin the Arctic Chads. Um, I think there is more we can do on the climate front um, in, turn, on, in that engagement basket. I, this is something that's new to me, but I know it's clearly ticked up um, the Kremlin's agenda. We've seen a real sea change in the way that President Putin is thinking about and talking about climate. I understand they're probably trying to use that to push for sanctions relief on some areas. I don't know all of the ins and outs of it, but it's an area that I'm going to be really excited to dive mm -hmm. into because it does seem like that is an area we sh we need to be able to engage with Russia when it is in our you in, in our interest to do it it's in our interest in a lot of cases like on climate like in the arctic and so we need to be looking for those opportunities so that right. we have that double track you know the one thing we haven't talked about which i'm so surprised given it that it's mike and i is we haven't really talked about the china part of this equation and i think if we're going to get a us policy right we have to have Russia has to believe that some sort of engagement is possible with the West, and they have to see it as preferable to their growing subservience to China. And so we have to look for some areas of engagement to at least create that foundation. And I think that's going to be key to getting the long-term policy on Russia right over the long term. Yeah, no, I would agree with almost all that. Couple, I would make a couple of words of caution. I, mean, I agree with you about Normandy. This is moving toward and, and toward this to bringing the U.S. into it, and, and, and Normandy is kind of slow, dying a slow death. What I would be careful about that there is um, what Vladimir Frolov calls the the Russian-American Committee to run the world, um, and the Kremlin would like nothing more than the two big powers to sit down and say, "This is mine, and this is yours, Yalta style." And they're going to interpret that. Whether or not we approach it that way, they are going to interpret it that way. And I think some, that, that is something we have to be very mindful of and very careful about. I agree this with the, you, Brian. Yeah. This is the world. This is the world. And on China, I would also I would also urge caution. I know some are saying we should try to peel Russia off from China. And I'm I'm that that That's argument makes me I really – I know, I know, I know, I know. But it could be misconstrued that way. That 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 would be my concern there. Michael, I know you wanted to talk about before we wrap it up. We're bumping up against the end here, but um, I know you did want to talk about the misplaced comp comparisons between now and the, uh, the the period of zastoy or stag stagnation um, during the during during the seventies and early eighties. This is a comparison I make a lot. Um, so tell me why I'm wrong. Sure, I have to. Before I do, I do want oh, a couple do. seconds. <laughs> I do want a couple seconds though. Wait before I, before I take that up. On the on on the Russia China bit, because I do think that we need to just fundamentally move that conversation forward. 
there is a notable alignment and partnership between Russia and China. It is not an alliance, but what alignment is more significant what matters at the end of the day is state behavior. We have to take it seriously at this point. There are still some people out there who say, this is transactional, it's just symbolic. This is just a cosplay alliance, you know? I'm not speaking of anyone specifically. Mark Elliott, you got to come join us, okay, on this side, on this side of the conversation, okay? Um, oh, now you got me in right? trouble. Yeah, I, I, no, I have to. I have to. You know, this is my part of my no co-host calling out my former co-host on the air. <laughs> Mark is a great friend, but this is part of our No Analyst Left Behind program. Mark has to come join us, okay? It is significant. We can debate what the future would hold. We can debate whether or not web strategies are possible, okay? All of that, but we need to move this conversation forward. It is a significant thing, it is happening, it does matter for US policy. The relation between Russia and China is meaningful, okay? And, and period, that's, a, that's all I wanna say in that. And if you're still out there saying that this is just symbolic or it's more uh, flash than bang, uh, I'm sorry, you're wrong, and you're being dated. At, at this point, you're, we have to we have to uh, look, look things in the in the eye and call them as they are. Uh, on historical arguments, so the only thing I want to say is like, look, one of the assumptions that that underpins this approach to Russia here in some circle is um, kind of the lure of faulty Cold War analogies and and kind of the notion that okay, Russia's economic stagnation and the regime's increasingly ossified, politically repressive nature. They're reminiscent of the Soviet period of economic and political stagnation of 1975 to 1985, known as Zastoy, right? And so it might appear that Russia's undergoing a Zastoy 2.0 and that eventually, like in the Soviet Union, something has to give. Okay, this is a very attractive point of view, and I can see why people believe it. And the reason by analogy has its uses, but it can be misleading because superficial similarities, they tend to overshadow the big significant differences, right? So a couple basic points. Soviet Union was riddled by huge command economy inefficiencies, runaway, runaway defense spending at over 16% of GDP, it had very expensive foreign policy subsidizing client regimes, a gerontocracy that was aging at the top, and warship-packed allies totally in debt to the West, right? Russia doesn't face these pressures. And more importantly, it was the Soviet Union's attempt to reform, to try to save the system, that thrust the Soviet Union into immense debt and ultimately led to its collapse. Those decisions were driven both by material pressures and ideas, but it was the agency of Soviet leaders that was decisive yes. in ending the Cold War and in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Neither of those was an inevitable outcome. Exactly. And, and, no, I, and, I agree with you, Michael, wholeheartedly. I mean, you're in health. Yeah, those pressures facing the Soviet Union were far more significant than those confronting Russia today. Compared, look, Russia's economic stagnation is very mild in absolute relative terms, right? And its military expenditure is sustainable. The foreign policy is cheap. The economic system is much less dependent on oil sale to cover up all these deep fragilities that the Soviet Union had. And, and so when we look back, when we look at these comparisons, what we have to accept is first, Russian leaders don't think they're running a country in decline. Second, they're not about to undertake massive reforms like Soviet leaders did, that, mass, that plunge the system into debt, chaos, and the like, all right? Third, Russian economic stagnation is very different from that of Soviet Union, realistically. This can go on, and it will. It's not a situation where something has to give. All right, and, and you can say, Mike, that's status quo bias, that you're just basically assuming that things will go on like this, there could be sudden change. So yes, that's true, and I could win the lottery too, and, and that would dramatically <laughs> change my financial situation, but I have to plan on the fact that I won't, right? So my financial planning has to be based on the fact that I won't be winning lotteries. Um, and, and the last point is, and this is very significant, 
when you think about Russia as 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 a power, you're right-sizing in your strategy. Remember, Soviet decline was profound because the Soviet Union was in a zero-sum confrontation with the United States. Okay. That's not where Russia is positioned today. Russian stagnation, however you may perceive it, right? Russia's not America's principal challenger, China is. And in the current configuration of international politics, what Russia's undergoing today is not going to lead to a precipitous decline of Russian power or influence in the world, like it did for the Soviet Union in the 1980s, right? But the context is very different. And that's why the comparison doesn't work. You're just operating a different world today than we were back then. No, Michael, you and I agree here more than more than I think thought we would because um, when when I make the comparison with the Brezhnev period I always make add the caveat that this could be a very protracted period of zastoy of stagnation right and if I remember properly I mean I was like I was pretty young then I had more hair then than I have now but the USSR was pretty damn dangerous from 75 to 85 if I remember correctly I remember this invasion of Afghanistan that kind of happened back in 79. I remember the shoot the shooting down of KAL flight 007 in in in, in 82. I re, I don't I didn't remember because I didn't we didn't know it was happening at the time, but there was almost a nuclear exchange in late September 1982. Um the the, the Soviet Union for uh, for 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 power in decline was pretty damn dangerous in those 10 years. Um, and what if Andropov hadn't died? Nobody expected that to happen, and it happened. Where, where would we be today? We'd be having a very different conversation today if Andropov hadn't died when he did, um, because things would have would have played out a lot differently. We are bumping up against the end, but I want to give Andrea the last word. Uh, I don't know. I'll just say I cut that whole part about the Zostoy 2.0 out of the piece. <laughs> oh, so I'm getting into a dispute among co-authors. All right, that's cool. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, this has been a really awesome conversation. I don't have a lot to add. I mean, I think we really covered it. Um, this was a great conversation, and I'm really thankful for you having me on. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm thankful for you coming on, and I hope this isn't the last time. Michael's become a regular. I'd like to like to like to get you in as a regular as well. All right. Well, unfor- uh, Michael, you have one last word. I, I just make quick or my producers are going to kill me. Sure. I just want to thank you for hosting us, and I just want to thank Andrea for cutting the story part out of the Foreign Affairs article piece because that's going to be a separate piece that I will torture people with then on my own. It will become a bigger argument that's separate. So stay tuned. All right, man. I'll look forward to it. I will read it, and maybe I'll have you on the program to talk about it. And that's all we have. To- time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an, I'm an assistant professor of practice at UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that really was once owned by George Washington, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennedy Institute. And also joining us from our nation's capital has been Andrea Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Before joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer. And from 2015 to 2018, she was deputy national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council in the office of the director of national intelligence. Thank you both for an enlightening, awesome, and fun conversation. Thanks, Brian. Um, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Vegas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Adult Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you like us, please leave us a five big fat five-star rating and review as that really helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.